Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Positive Pessimist Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Gaither. Hope you guys are all doing well. My guest today is Bill Kennison, the brother of legendary Sam Kennison. I cannot wait to talk to this guy. I've got a lot of questions. Sam Kennison is kind of the reason I, not the reason I started stand-up comedy, but he definitely planted a seed for me when I was about 11 years old. He made some jokes about some things that I knew I shouldn't be laughing about, but I just could not help it. And uh, he's always been one of my favorites. So I can't wait to hear some stories and talk to his brother. Let's bring him in. Can you hear me? Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. How you doing? Good, doing good, Tim. How you doing, brother? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, that's all right. It's all right. Yeah, I was just saying in the introduction that your brother, when I was about 11 years old, I watched that Roddy Dangerfield Young Comedian special. <laughs> And I was raised Southern Baptist, and some of the things that he was joking about, I knew that I wasn't supposed to be laughing at it, but I just, <laughs> I just could not help it. You know, it was just so undeniably funny um, that I, you know, and it planted a seed for me. And so I was always a big fan of your brother, and uh, so getting to talk to you is, is super cool for me. I had to, like, take deep breaths before I called you because I was so nervous. I'm like, dude... <laughs> oh, just relax, man. We'll have a good time. Yeah. By the way, I'm I'm very very sorry to hear about your brother. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, all three of mine, and and uh, some it's been some of the hardest things I've went through. Yeah, it, it's it's been a month on on uh, Sunday that it happened, and and you know I haven't told anybody this yet, but they they say he killed himself, and and I'm not altogether positive that's what happened, but. Um, so it's, it's, it's been the most difficult month of my, of my life so far. And, and just when I think I'm turning a corner a little bit, um, something happens and the next thing I know, I'm crying my face off. So I know that my youngest brother, uh, they originally said that he committed suicide. And then about six weeks later, they determined that it was a homicide. And I got to tell you, I would have felt better if it had been a suicide. Uh, he was shot in the back of the head. And um, to think of whatever moments of terror that he had, I, I would have much rather that he'd uh, he just took his own life and not had to have go through that. But it's not it's not easy, dude. And I tell you one thing: you you never get over it. You just adjust to it. Yeah. So you've lost all three of your brothers, huh? Yeah, yeah. My youngest brother was murdered, and they said they had botched the whole thing. And by the time they figured out it was a homicide, and the only way we'd ever know is if somebody just confessed. And obviously, uh, that had that hasn't happened in over thirty years. Yeah. And then uh, Sam was killed in a car accident, and then uh, my brother Richard uh, died of cancer about seven years ago. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that. We, you're the oldest of all of them. Well, I might as well have been. I was the second, but my oldest brother was uh, severely mentally handicapped, born severely mentally handicapped and blind. And then at the age of 13, he was miraculously healed or recovered, whatever you want to call it, and uh, started the school system at 13. And we graduated from high school together. And he ended up being a preacher like the rest of us, but he was a lot better than we were. He was... Uh, <laughs> At, at his funeral, I, I told him that uh, Sam was uh, is regarded as being in the top five stand-up comedians of all time, but the real star of our family was Richard. Oh, wow. And so him being a handicapped, I, I was pretty much the oldest. I raised him and, and uh, 
fought for them. And remember, I stood at uh, my brother Richard's casket and uh, looking down, and I told him, I said, well, one thing is you made me tough. Yeah. Because if you messed with him, you had to, you had to deal with me. And we uh, came out of the same projects as Richard Pryor and uh, in Peoria, Illinois. Wow. And they all knew me, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah I, was, I was basically the oldest. Yeah, it, it's crazy how, you know, you can fight with your own brothers, but if somebody else messes with them, oh. uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a different story. And, and as far as my brother, um, you know, it's tough because what, where it happened was nine hours away, and it's kind of a small uh, police force, and, and I get the feeling that they're not too concerned about it, and it's just been kind of, uh, you know, and my dad can't really deal with it right now, so it, it's been all me, and it's certainly been uh, uh, difficult. Well, I, I found out with uh, Kevin for that six weeks, uh, there's a real prejudice uh, not only in the police force, but even at the hospital, if they think that you have attempted or tried suicide or, or have been successful, there's a, there's a real prejudice. They just don't they don't worry about it. Yeah, well, that's how this particular cop acted. He, uh, you know, he he kept being real short with me, and and I just stayed real calm and nice and everything. And towards the end of the conversation, he's like, you know, I've been kind of a jerk a little bit, and and you just have stayed calm and nice and everything. And and in my head, I was like, well, you have no idea what I'm thinking right now, but I want you to help me figure out what happened to my brother. Um, So it's it's still an ongoing thing. I I, I knew knew every one of those emotions, believe me. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, And and that's why when I I saw that post about your brother, um, you know, I knew what you had been through. I read your book, and and so I was like, not only would I love to talk to him about... um, about Sam, but you know, it, it, not everyone has been through losing a brother and it's, uh, it's not something I would wish on anybody. And I was like, I, I no. think it would be good for me to talk to that guy. Well, I, we can talk about anything you want to All right, buddy. What, anything you want at your show. What, uh, what do you miss most about Sam? Oh man. Well, what I envied most about him was uh, his impulsiveness and uh, his unpredictability and uh, and his commitment. I mean, uh, Sam, I think he had pretty well got convinced, and I probably did too, that uh, the best he would ever do was headline clubs, which he never did, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and but he wasn't going to change. He wasn't going to change his comedy. And uh, to him, he never wrote a routine in his life. He, and if you watch his comedy, he didn't do routines. He really was a a, a tremendous uh, uh, comedy speaker from his days of being in in the ministry. Yeah. And everything that he usually did, that was his viewpoints, right or wrong. Uh, that was his life experiences. Yeah. And um, we did we did roughly two hundred and eighty shows a year. I was his manager. And once he hit, we did about 280 shows a year. And what I loved was is that uh, they were never they were never alike. It was whatever was going on that night, and he had this genius ability, yeah, of of making anything funny. I told him, I said, brother, when everybody remembers your first bit is making fun of starving children, <laughs> and you can make them laugh, you better be funny. Yeah. 
He better be funny, and he was. What a what a great bit. You see this? It's sand. You know what's going to be in 100 years? It's going to be sand. <laughs> you live in the fucking desert. You need to go where the food is. Oh, dude, it was just brutally funny. And when he was talking about Jesus getting nailed to the cross and all that, I'm like, man, I am not supposed to be laughing at this, but I can't help it. <laughs> and and uh, it planted a seed for me because, you know, I've been a comedian now for a living for over 20 years, and... My favorite kind of comedy is talking about things that aren't typical. And it's gotten much harder to do because of how politically correct audiences have become. Do you think, uh, do you think it, that he would have had the same career today as far as how politically correct everyone is? Or you think he just would have found his audience still because he was so well, funny? I, I don't know that he would have uh, been doing a lot of stand-up. His... Uh his stand-up was his way of getting into movies and uh, TV. And uh, he got married on on uh, April the 5th, which uh, he wanted to get married on our dad's birthday, which had passed. And uh, then he got killed on April the 10th. But during that five-day stretch, I signed a, uh, a TV series on Fox called the Sam Kennison Family Entertainment Hour. And uh, I also signed a three-movie deal with New Line Cinema. And uh, the reason we were going to Laughlin was that was our last casino town uh, that I could get a that I get a contract with. And then we we had all the the uh, I also did a three-year deal with uh, uh, Las Vegas uh, Hilton. And so Laughlin was our last casino town, and our our deal was. Our, our goal was when we got into it was being doing movies and television, and then uh, you know the casinos were the easiest thing in the world to play. Yeah, you went downstairs, you did your show for forty minutes, and you came back up so well with Sam, you God knows where you went, strip clubs or, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, and uh, so that was our goal was to do that and uh, maybe do a a twelve city tour, you know, in the summer. But uh, he was really you know, phasing out, yeah, or he would have been phasing out the stand-up comedian part. I don't think he ever would have gotten away from it. Yeah, but I mean, we wouldn't have had near the schedule that we had previously. Yeah, and uh, so that's that was his goals. Yeah, I agree with the. Uh, I love when a show is right downstairs and you can go right back <laughs> up to your room and all that. I, I'm a big fan of that. Um, and, I, and I've been sometimes on. Sometimes it was good, and sometimes it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been on that stretch of road that that Sam passed on, and it's impossible to not drive it without. I've been going on the way to Laughlin and not thinking about about that. And and God, what a treacherous stretch of road, you know, all those huge horrible, horrible. Yeah, um, just a horrible, horrible road, and we we didn't know. I mean, uh, we'd never been to Laughlin, and so I looked on. You know, on the map, you didn't have GPSs back then. Mm-hmm. And I looked on the map, and that looked like, you know, the quickest, best way to go. And he wasn't even supposed to be driving. He was supposed to uh, get on a on a, a charter jet, fly to Vegas, and uh, the Riverside would have a limo waiting for him and bring him down to Laughlin. And then I had his opening act and security, and I rented a van. And uh, I was going to drive there because I wanted to come home after the show on Sunday. I didn't want to wait till Monday. And uh, don't don't mind that. I got family coming in. They'll be all right. 
And so, uh, uh, but that day, the whole day was just kind of weird. He got, he took a red eye back from Hawaii from his honeymoon and uh, called me and said, what's the plan? I told him what it was. And he said, well, I want to drive. He's always afraid that he's going to die in a plane crash. So he said, I want to drive. And so I said, all right. And so we met at Barstow at this McDonald's. It's still there. That is like a train. And, uh, and we had a talk and, yeah, pretty general, and then we got on the highway, and he had his uh, uh, Trans Am, and uh, so we just, the last exit before we got to that river road, it's not even there anymore, was a kind of a gas station and, you know, a little shopping thing or whatever you want to go into, and he had that gas, so we pulled in there, and uh, then it really started getting weird, because we, uh, uh, while while they were filling up the gas, the guys that were with us, uh, Sam and I were talking, and I said, I think we need to get a new uh, booking agent. And he said, man, we, did, we just got this guy like uh, two months ago. And I go, yeah, but they're the, they're the most expendable part of, of your organization. And, uh, and so he was like, uh, well, you know what, whatever, whatever you think, you take care of the business. So I said, all right. And uh, then I had a pair of Oliver Peoples sunglasses. And he he loved Oliver Peoples, but the guys he would party with had stolen every pair he had. And so I gave him my pair. And but then, then he uh, he said, I want you to have the guys empty out my car, put all the stuff in the van. And so I'm like, dude, we're only 25 miles from Rothland. He goes, no, I put everything in the van. Well, he also had this dog, uh, a poodle mix, that uh, uh, he went everywhere with. And so then he said, uh, take Russo, which was his name, put Russo in the van, too. And I was like, what's going on? He goes, no, I just, I just, I want everything out of the car. So I said, all right. And uh, then he always followed me when we were driving because he was usually with, you know, smoking pot and, just following the, you know, the guy in front of him. Yeah. Well, this time he pulled out in front of me, and uh, which he never did, and uh, didn't know any more about where he was going than I did. And we got on River Road in about 3.2 miles, I think it was. Uh, he got hit head on. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, that whole setup was just, it was just strange. I think Sam had a premonition that something was going to happen to him. Not, not necessarily at that time, or that he was going to die. I don't know if he had a premonition, but he definitely had a premonition from weeks forward of different things that he would do, which were out of character. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's what happened. Yeah, it's it's so weird how things work out because, you know, a minute's difference and it, it might not have happened, you know, at all. Um, so I'm I'm very sorry, and I appreciate you telling me that story. And I wasn't going to ask this until later in the in the uh, podcast, but I might as well ask it now. Who do you think Sam was talking to? Uh, you know, I've heard that he he talked to someone, and I read in your book that he t- was talking to somebody, and and then he got real calm. And do you have a who do you think he was talking to? Well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, his opening act has a totally different story, and when I asked him about it years ago, I said, "Dude." Because he says that he was holding Sam and Sam fell out of the car and his arm. None of that was true. Okay. None of that. 
And I actually seen a, uh, he just passed away, but I actually seen a, a uh, interview he did, I guess just a few months ago, and it was everything that I had said. Huh. Only it was him. So the truth of the matter is, is that uh, uh, I was following him, and it's on, you know what that two-lane road is like, and and it was dusk, and so you know you could see like vehicles in front of you coming down hills and going up hills, and so there was a truck over in our lane, a pickup truck, an old one, and uh, so I'm I start talking to Sam, even though he can't hear me. I'm in a you know I'm in a vehicle behind him. And I'm going, slow down, Sam. You know, let this guy back in. Slow down. And uh, he did, almost like he heard me, but obviously he couldn't hear me. Yeah. And he slowed down to probably about 15 miles an hour. And uh, so this truck, at the last second, got back in line. He was passing all these cars, and he got back in line at the very last second until you just had a moment of, whoo. Well, what we didn't see was his buddy in a pickup behind him. Okay. That was also passing the cars. And so, uh, I mean, in a fraction, uh, they hit head on and obviously Sam lost that. And, uh, so I pulled the van up next to the door and our security guy and the uh, opening act, uh, they got out. One of them was trying to open the door and I just told him, get get out of the way. And I guess with the adrenaline, I jerked the door open and Sam was sitting in the driver's seat, but he was actually leaning over on the armrest and the only marks on him was, was like somebody had scratched him with their four fingers on his forehead. And, uh, when I opened the door, he looked at me and he said, uh, oh, why now? Why now, brother? Why now? And so I was like, Sam, just lay still. We got help on the way, which I didn't know if we did or not because we was in a dead area with the cell phones. I grabbed his cell phone and mine, and he kept scooting over. He had, at that time, he weighed 280 pounds. He kept scooting over to get out of this the seat. And so I finally realized that uh, uh, he wasn't going to stay, you know, in that seat. And so uh, the opening act and the security guy, they were off off on the side freaking out. The security guy tore off, <laughs> tore off the sleeves off his shirt and made a bandana and I don't even know uh, the opening act was a guy named Carl LeBeau. I don't even know what Carl was doing. But there was a bunch of bystanders, and a couple of bystanders came over and helped me just lay him on the, on the highway because I didn't know what injuries he had. Yeah. And, and I didn't want him to be paralyzed or something like that. And uh, so then to cut, cut to the story, I, I had these – both these phones, no one is holding Sam. He's laying there on the highway. I'm standing probably about five or six feet away. And uh, and so he, I hear him like he's negotiating with somebody. Wasn't, wasn't talking like he was afraid, but he was, it was pretty much like somebody was going, it's time for you to go. And he's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Well, at this point, I'm looking at him, and, and his eyes aren't rolled back or whatever. They're focused on something or someone. And uh, then he finally just went, okay, okay, okay. And uh, 
And that was it. Yeah. And uh, I still didn't realize it. I'm looking, I'm still trying to, I'm listening to these words. And I'm still trying to get help. And But I, the dog got my attention. Because this dog is completely untrained. Every door on this van is open. Any other time, this dog is gone. Yeah. And he is, he's standing on the seat with his paws up on the dash. And he's looking right over Sam. And then you know how you say something without thinking about it. And so uh, with the guys that were there, I said, uh, has he quit breathing? And I don't know why I said it. I wasn't, again, none of us knew he was dying. I don't care what anybody says. We knew he was hurt, but we didn't know he was dying. Yeah. And uh, so one of the guys checked him and uh, said, yeah, well, you know, my two compadres, (laughs) (laughs) they hear that, they, they start freaking out. So I'm like, who else knows CPR? Well, the kid that hit him was 17, but he uh, worked at a hospital, I don't know, sweeping floors, whatever he did. And uh, so he said, I do. I said, then get your ass over here, and you do compressions, and I'll do mouth-to-mouth. But uh, he was he was gone. I mean, I couldn't even get the phlegm out of his mouth to give him mouth-to-mouth. And about that time, the police were there really quick. Uh, you know, when you're, as you know by what you went through, when you get the news, you're you're in a you're somewhere where there is no time. Yeah. So I don't know if they were there in a minute or there in five minutes, and uh, but they were there and they uh, they took over and started doing CPR and the paramedics are right behind him, and uh, so they stuck a stuck that thing down his throat to be able to you know try to give him mouth to mouth. Yeah. And. Uh, and I remember I got down on my on my knee next to him on one side of Sam, and he's on the other. And I asked him, I said, are we doing any good? And he just looked at me. He never said anything. He didn't move. He just looked at me. And uh, and I knew, I knew it was over. And so that's the true events. He never got up and walked around. He didn't fall into anybody's arms. Uh, no one was holding him. Yeah. Uh, he died of a uh, uh, four different things that could have been fatal that they don't know which one killed him. He had, had a fractured skull, a broken neck, a torn heart. Uh, the steering wheel was gone in, inside the car. Wow. Torn heart and a, and a torn uh, small intestine, which was his stomach. And uh, so we don't know, you know, which which one killed him, but uh, one of those four, but he he wasn't he wasn't getting out of there so yeah uh, and you, you know why why do you think Carl had a different uh, memory of it do you have an opinion on that I have I have no idea the first time I heard him give his vision or give his version I went now it's changed a lot down through the years that's been twenty nine years ago yeah the original version was that uh, he wasn't holding Sam he was he was sitting right next to him. But that, you know, things tend to grow. Yeah. And uh, and when I questioned him on it, uh, first time that I heard him say it in person, I go, dude, that's, that's not what happened. Why, why are you saying that? And he goes, well, I guess we both have different memories. And I go, well, since I lived it, I have, my memory is pretty vivid and it's as clear today as it was uh, back then. And uh, 
Carl and Sam had been best friends for uh, several years. And then uh, when we were on that trip, uh, they were not, they were not best friends. Okay. And uh, uh, actually Carl had moved up out of California. I'm trying to think of the little town that uh, he moved up to because if Sam seen him, he was gonna he was gonna whip his ass, and so uh, this Laughlin was supposed to be our last last gig, oh, okay, our last show on the road. And so Carl called me and said, uh, uh, "Will Sam let me go on the trip? I'm completely out of money." And Sam paid him really well. He paid him five thousand a show, and wow. some nights when we did two shows, he got ten thousand. So I called Sam, and Sam's immediate reaction was, no, no, it's not happening. And so I said, well, I'm just, I don't care if you do or not. Carl and I weren't, you know, we weren't ever that close. Yeah. And I said, I don't care if you do or not. Uh, I'm just telling you, called. He has no money. He's hiding out from you. And so Sam... I had one of the biggest, most generous hearts of anybody I've ever seen in my life. And so he said, well, I'll tell you then, here's what the deal is. The deal is that uh, uh, we don't ride together. And he doesn't say a word to me. Not one word. Wow. And we're never on stage together. So after he opens up, he gets off that stage before I ever come out. I don't want to see him in the casino. So the best thing for him to do is to stay in his room. Wow. And so that was the stipulation. I called Carl back and went, uh, you know, here's here's the deal. And so he said, all right. And so uh, with the feelings uh, between them, uh, that emotional love fest that Carl thought went on on the highway, it never, it just didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, you're the, this is the first time I've actually ever sit down and told anyone, you know, that it did not happen. Okay. Uh, that way. Well, and, I, uh, I appreciate you telling me. Uh, do you know what their fallout was about? Yeah. Do you care to talk about it or no? No, no, because it, it, okay. it would involve uh, uh, Sam's wife. and Okay. And stuff, and so I, uh, I don't, I don't care to. It was a number of things. Okay. Uh, Sam, Sam, and and he had made a deal in Houston, Texas, where they met each other. And the deal was, if one of them made it, uh, he would help the other. Well, I guess at the time, Sam thought that was a great idea. After a few years, uh, he would tell me, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure glad I made that deal. <laughs> and but he still, and I told him, I said, "Dude, you you've done enough. It's time for him to stand on his own. He's played in front of five, ten thousand people consistently. Yeah. So if he can't cut it now, then you don't owe him anything. But that was not how Sam. You know, that's not how Sam felt. He he was loyal to his friends, and he expected his friends to be loyal to him." Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's where, where it happened. It wasn't just, 
it wasn't something that just happened that week. Yeah. I mean, uh, this, they had, they had broken this friendship, uh, probably two or three months before. Okay. Yeah, that, that says something about Sam, because I've, I've had fallouts like that with people, and I sure as hell wouldn't have them open for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that was... Yeah. And Sam was frustrated uh, with him because uh, Carl, when he first went out, he, he had maybe 15, 20 minutes. Okay. After six years, he still had about the same 15, 20 minutes. You know, and Sam would get on him all the time and go, dude, you know... Get a new act and don't do my stuff because he would get on the same subjects that he knew Sam was going to talk about. And that, that really pissed him off. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a shame because we, we took uh, Carl into our family as family. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's how it ended. And then after Sam passed, I guess it doesn't, uh, go, goes, kind of goes without saying you guys didn't have any relationship after that. Actually, actually, right after uh, Sam died there again, I mean, I guess in the last few years, uh, Carl said when Sam died that uh, he forgave him for everything. And I'm, you know, being Sam's brother and being there, you know, for those six straight years, you can imagine uh, us living on the road, uh, you know, almost three-fourths of the year. I, the first time I heard him say, I'm like, what did he have to forgive? Yeah. You know, Sam bought this guy new cars. Sam bought a house in Malibu and then about a mile away rented a house for Carl. Wow. That he paid. And uh, so I'm like, I don't know. But we were, you know, we were friends at first. And uh, I gave him, I don't know, I literally gave him thousands of dollars. I gave him one of Sam's cars because he didn't have a car. And uh, when we when we kind of split up was uh, I, I had season tickets to the Anaheim Ducks hockey team. Okay. And this was their first, first year. And uh, so I would, I had four tickets and I'd call Carl almost every game and ask him then with his girlfriend want to, want to come and so uh he said yeah and uh you know and i'd feed them we'd enjoy have a great time there at the uh hockey game then i called him one time and he goes uh yeah man we want to come but uh you can't bring up sam and so i said carl that's the only bond you and i have right is sam i'm not a comedian I've never been a comedian. I only bond to Sam. If that's the way you feel, then you stay at home. Yeah. Because I'm not going to go anywhere. And if somebody brings up Sam, not talk about it. Sure. And uh, and so that started the rift, and which I didn't even know was going on. And then whenever I had, I remember I I did some. Uh, I was doing a bunch of interviews for. Uh, some project that I had, I don't remember what it was, and uh, and at that time Carl wouldn't do. He changed his name to CD LeBeau, uh so that people wouldn't think <laughs> he was, yeah that he was the guy that opened for Sam. <laughs> <laughs> huh. And then he wouldn't go on the Howard Stern show, which would have been a big boost for him. Yeah. And when I asked him about it, he said, uh, "Well, all he's going to want to do is talk about 
sand. Yeah. And I go, brother, you need to parlay this into a career. You know, what are you doing? Yeah. You've never even headlined a club. What are you doing? And uh, so I was doing some interviews, and I remember uh, I was doing Mantow up in Chicago at that time. And uh, so during this interview, it goes, uh, what's, what's the problem with Carl and the Tennyson family? And this is totally oblivious to me. Yeah. And I go, I didn't know there was any. And so then when they went to the break, I told Mantow, I said, stay on, I want to talk to you. So I went to the break, and I go, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, well, we had Carl on, man. He's talking a lot of trash about you. Wow. And I go, about me? And he goes, uh, yeah. And so I thought, I don't know. So then I played Philadelphia, and there was a big show there, two, two guys on there, and they, they asked me the same question. So when we get off, I go, what is Carl talking about? And he said, well, he's trashing Sam, he's trashing you, but no one would tell me what specifically, you know, that he was talking about. Yeah. And so, uh, so I finally called him on the, on the phone when I got off all these things. I go, hey, you want to tell me what's going on? And he goes, uh, what, brother? I said, I just got through doing some radio shows. I guess that you've done them in the past, and uh, we've got a big rift between you and the and me. And uh, and so he goes, uh, yeah. And I go, what is that? And he goes, Sam destroyed every life that was around you. And I go, okay. I don't know how you can feel that way, uh, since. You'd have been a nothing. The only name you had was opening for Sam. Uh, but what does that have to do with me? And yeah. so uh, he really didn't get specific. And then, oh, a short time after that, he went on Howard. Okay. And Gary called me and said, uh, hey, uh, Carl's on with Howard. And I go, really? I thought he wasn't going wouldn't do Howard. He said, yeah, he's on, but... You might want to come on. And I go, why? He said, man, he's he trashing you and Sam. And I said, okay. I said, I'm not going to go on now. You know, after I talk to Carl, I'll maybe come on tomorrow or whatever. But I'm not going to, you know, I said, I'll listen. But I'm not going to get on. Well, what he came out with was that his daughter, he said, belonged to Sam. That it was Sam's daughter. Okay. All right. Well, Carl knew that from the time that she was born. She's 16 years old now. This is how she finds out that Carl may not be her dad. On the Howard Stern show. On the Howard Stern show. Wow. And so I I got a hold of her. And I'm not going to mention her name or anything. I don't know that she'd want that publicity. But I got a hold of her, and uh, we started communicating, and and had some great talks. She's had she had a rough rough time in her life, and uh, and then she goes, you know, I always wondered why that uh, Carl never saw me after I was six years old. 
Well, the last time you seen him, we were playing in Atlantic City, and uh, Carl's ex-wife at that time uh, called me and said, "You know, Carl like to like to see his daughter." And so uh, I said, "Yeah, he should." So I went and got Carl and got him awake and got him up. And he goes, "What are we doing?" I said, "We're going down here to the mall. You're gonna you're gonna spend some time with your daughter." Here's a couple hundred bucks. You take her shopping and you do whatever. And, uh, and so he did. Well, right after that, he wanted to contest the paternity in court. So I got him, I got him a, a, uh, an attorney that I paid for. Wow. Well, the problem was first they wanted Carl to, uh, to take a DNA test, his attorney did, to verify whether or not this is Sam's or it's Carl's baby. Uh, he refused to do that. And I, I don't know what the reasoning was. Uh, right after that, she asked me if I would do a DNA, and I said, yes, I would. Because I thought if this is Sam's daughter, she needs to know. And so I did do the DNA, not Carl. Carl didn't do a DNA to prove he wasn't the father, but I did a DNA uh, that said either Sam or me was the father because Sam's Sam dead. Okay. And so in some of some of Carl's uh, things, when he uh, went back to or later on, twelve years later, he goes back to court. But uh, back then, uh, he wouldn't show up. Uh, the attorney was ready just to forget it, but she went on to uh, in the court without Carl. And the ruling was in the state of California that uh, if you don't protest paternity in the first two years of the baby's life, you are the legal father. Okay. Doesn't make any difference who it is biologically. You are because they don't want to disrupt uh, the child. Yeah. And... Uh, and that explained a lot to me because I, I really didn't know, you know, you look at a six-year-old child, you know, I, I couldn't tell if it was Sam's or right. Carl looked like a six-year-old child, but it really kind of explained things to me because when they got the divorce, uh, Sam paid uh, the court rule that Carl had to pay 5000 a month because that's the kind of money he made, child support. Sam paid every penny of that child support. Okay. And so I think Sam knew. And uh, then I don't know if you want to get into all this, but we'll go 12 years later. And that's when he's on this, this blitz when I called him and everything else. And, uh, and so he uh, gets on the joy Behar show. And then I find out what the real issue is with me. And that is, uh, uh, he didn't know if it was Sam's or mine. Uh, well, I could I can testify it wasn't mine. Yeah, I really didn't care for his his ex wife or wife when she was there. Okay, and uh, so that only left Sam, and then that that his ex wife and I had conspired to keep this quiet. Yeah, like who cares if Sam had a child or not? Yeah, but the whole issue was. 
that he wanted out from the child support. He had not paid one penny and never did. Yeah. Paid one penny and he owed over $250,000. Damn. So now he wants to go into court and uh, convince the judge he's not the father. And the judge will go, all right, well, then you don't owe this child support. Except it didn't quite work out that way. He went in. The judge told him twice, you know, sir, uh, you really need representation. And I'll give you a continuance if you like. No, no. Once I tell you my story, I think you'll understand. And I was sitting there, even though I'd come in right after he had sat down at the uh, uh, conference table there in the courthouse, in the, in the jury or in the courtroom. And so he, uh, so he started off with Bill Kennison and my wife. And he goes, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know who Bill Kennison is. He's not a party to this action. I got a call from your ex-wife's attorney from Florida this morning. They want to leave the judgment of $250-some-thousand. They want to leave that in place. Now, you need to concentrate on why you're really here this morning. And so uh, Carl was like, all right, all right. Well, he starts right back again on Bill Kennison. So Judge finally went, all right, all right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to remind you again that Bill Kennison, and I don't even have any idea who he is, but uh, he's not a party to this. Okay. Now, let me ask, and the judge said, let me ask you a few questions. And so he said, all right. He said, uh, when did you find out that this baby belonged to Sam Kennison? He said, I just recently found out through a DNA test. And the judge goes, are you sure? said, yes, I am. He said, okay, well, I want to read an affidavit. You were in court 12 years ago, and I guess Carl thought, you know, they're not going to find out if you're in court. Yeah. So he said, let me read an affidavit. Do you recognize the name of Dr. So-and-so? Carl goes, no, sir. He said, that's the doctor that delivered this baby. And you were there, he said. And when the baby was delivered, I will read directly from the affidavit your ex-wife's words were oh my god oh my god it's sam's do you remember that no sir no sir he said well do you remember being in court 12 years ago no sir no sir he said well you lost 12 years ago and you would lose today wow and the judgment is going to stay in place. Well, then it then it kind of dawned on me on what was going on. It wasn't a matter of, you know, him trying to help this girl. It's a matter of he used her to try to get out from underneath the child support he never did pay. Yeah. And as far as I know, I talked to a gentleman this week that talked to, talked to Angelica I called her right after the court thing, and I think she was just so fed up with everything that she didn't, she didn't, I don't think she cared to carry on, you know, any relationship with me. Yeah. And, but uh, this gentleman told me that uh, Carl had never talked to her since that day. Huh. So that was the whole Sam and Bill and Carl, whatever you want to call it, fiasco. Okay. 
Well, I appreciate you telling me. I had I had Carl on a couple of years ago, and oh, well, he had a good story then. Well, he actually didn't. Uh, we didn't really talk too much about Sam, um, and I could tell that he didn't really want to. Uh, so we just kept it about comedy. Um, but I appreciate you telling me that very much. Is she doing? Is she doing well? He passed away. No, I, no, sir. I meant the daughter. Oh, the daughter. Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I have called, and then eventually I, I quit trying to call because she wasn't answering my calls. When I did call her after the uh, court thing, I said, "Well, I would imagine that uh, you heard how the." The court uh, came out, and she said, no, I didn't. I go, well, Carl still owes, owes you $250,000. And uh, and so she said, uh, all right. And I said, well, you have a family out here. I have a daughter your age. Anytime you want to come out, I'll pay for your plane ticket. You can stay as long as you want to stay here. You can get to know your cousin and get to know the other side of your family, but uh, she has never taken me up on that offer. So, okay. Well, I hope she's doing well. Um, uh, going. I, I want to rewind a little bit to your childhood. How much older are you than Sam? Five years. Five years. Okay. So, what was he like? As believe a... me, he lived a whole lot more life than I ever will if I live to be hundred. <laughs> what uh, What was he like as a kid? Was he always funny? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he always pulled pranks. He wasn't a he wasn't a mean kid. Yeah. He was just what I classify ornery. Yeah. He just loved to have fun and he was he is the the class clown if he was in school or out of the school. It didn't make much difference. Yeah. And uh he was hit by a, a truck when he was three years old going out in the street to get a ball and I was in school, I was in the second grade. And uh, I heard the ambulance, and for some reason, uh, Tim, I knew uh, they were going to get my brother. Wow. I don't know how. I was, you know, eight years old, seven or eight years old, and I knew they were going to get my brother. And I jumped up out of class, and I ran home. And when I got home, no one was there. And then a, a few hours later, you know, my family showed up with Sam, and... and uh, it was like it, it looked like Sam, but it didn't act like Sam. Huh. Before the accident, Sam was shy, quiet. Uh, after the accident, he was Sam. Yeah. You know, that we know. Okay. And uh, uh, he did end up with, which I never ever said until he passed, because he didn't want me ever to tell anyone, he ended up with 40% brain damage. Uh, he ended up with epilepsy, of which uh, I never had any seizures, but they thought the seizure would start when he's about 40. And uh, and that remolded his personality into, you know, the Sam Kennison that we all know. Huh. Wow, it's so weird how life works out. I mean, it, you know, obviously nobody wants that to happen to their kid, but uh, it, it almost was kind of a blessing in a way. Well, it wonders how he would have ended up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you said, you know, I could stay in Peoria and get a job at Caterpillar and lose half my teeth, or <laughs> I'd come out here and be a comedian. So I guess, I think he made the right choice. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was watching his interview last night with, uh, I think it was Larry King, and uh, 
It good just, interview, by the way. Yeah, it was a good interview, and it, he had all those rings on, and they kept clacking when he was talking, and uh, I was just, I just found myself thinking, man, I wish I would have known that guy, and I wish that I would have been able to do comedy at that time, because it's not the, you know, I didn't live back then, so I don't know exactly, but I've heard the stories, and it seems like it was so much more fun back then to be a comedian. Now, it's very, it's so competitive, and you have to like, I don't know, it's just like, it just seemed more fun back then, and and talk about a rock and roll comedian. I mean, he was the uh, the rock and roll comedian. Um, well, you had you had. Uh, I mean, stop and think of the influences in that time in the eighties, especially. You had Richard Pryor, which ended up being a great friend of ours. Like I said, we all came out of the same projects. Uh, you had Sam. You had Eddie Murphy, that uh, came up in the early nineties, and. Uh, you still had that segment like what you're talking about, that everything was politically correct, but these guys got to be so big that they couldn't do anything. I mean, Sam played to giant stadium of over 83,000 people one night. Yeah. I mean, I remember him coming out, and the, the roar and the cheers made every hair on my body stand up. Yeah. And Ted Nugent, I did a... Uh, a uh, documentary, I produced a documentary uh, called I Am Sam Kennison and Ted Nugent said something he said Sam was was uh, playing the same venues and arenas that we were and we all had pyrotechnics and uh, flying ramps everything. Sam had a microphone Yeah, and that was it I mean that's how powerful uh, he was, this guy sold, he was the first, I don't care what Dice Clay says, Sam was the first that ever sold out Madison Square Garden. Yeah. But I, and I thought that was fantastic. Next night we played Nassau Coliseum in New Jersey, and, and he sold it out to over 17,000 people. Nice. Now, there's never been a comedian ever to do that. I, I put a post up, oh, I don't know, week and a half, two weeks ago. I just wanted to express to everyone how how uh, proud I was to be his brother. Yeah. And uh, and I was because, and I said on there that comedians to me and hanging around the comedy store and being around them for, you know, 30 years are the most insecure. Uh, how can I put it? I don't remember exactly how I put it on there, but the most insecure jealous people I've ever seen in one business. Yeah. When they're struggling, they're all buddies, and you know that. Yeah. You know, you've been there. Yeah. They're all, they're all pulling it for each other until one of them makes it. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Uh, he's, he has this problem and that problem, and I believe me, I know Sam's problems, and I've never, <laughs> I have never hid those. Yeah. I've never tried to justify them. It was what it was. I just thank God TMZ wasn't around back then. <laughs> yeah. It might have been a shorter career. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but that, that is true. And, and I noticed that uh, every anniversary and every year I think I'm not going to post anything about Sam's death. It's been 29 years. It'll be 30 years this, this coming April 10th. And I'm thinking, you know, it's long enough. Not going to post, but then ever so many people start posting that I feel obligated 
to put something down. Yeah. And the last few years, I noticed something, and I said it in this post, that you have rockers, you have celebrities, you have fans. Just on this latest uh, post that I did, and it wasn't, you know, on his death date or anything else, it was just me kind of expressing my frustration. I had over, I let, before I came on, I checked, I got over 873 comments. Wow. But you know what you don't see? You don't see comics. You yeah. don't see comics ever ever posting on there. Yeah. About Sam. Yeah. Unless they're like you or up and coming and and whatever and you know, and then they, they give all kinds of accolades. Yeah. And so Robert Sarzo, which played for uh, Great White and I just a whole, a whole bunch, great bass player. Okay. He posted and, and it made so much sense to me, he goes Sam was one of us. He didn't belong to the comics. Yeah. He belonged to the rockers. <laughs> and and that's really the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's where most of his friends were. I mean, these guys, it wasn't Sam that wanted to hang out with them. They wanted to hang out with Sam. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so on this I Am Sam Kennison, we actually had, you know, several rockers because they'd never been a documentary with the rockers. And I always kept traveling when I'm trying to sell one. You know, we need to do one from the rocker standpoint. Yeah. And uh, and so that's that's what we did. But, I mean, some of the comments on there, I remember, uh, and the celebrities, I remember they contacted Charlie Sheen, and we had been close friends way back. And uh, then nothing happened between us, but, you know, you just don't see each other. Yeah, and so they they contacted him and said they'd like for him to be in this in this uh, documentary, and this was right after all the episodes he'd had, and uh, and so Charlie said, "All right, I'll do it, but I want it done at my house. I want Bill Kennison to do the interviewing, and I don't want a director or a producer here." Nice, and so we did it, and uh, if you watch it, he. he he was he was very, very uh, good and moved. At the end, he just broke down and went that that's enough. I can't I can't do any more. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, I'm not worried. You know about fifteen, twenty five, whatever comedians that the best they ever did in their life was headline a club. I'm not worried about those guys. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. You know. Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast, but every interview I've ever done, every time someone asks me who my influences were and all that, I always bring up that story about watching him and being like, that's that's the kind of comedy I would like to do, you know. Um, as far as, you know, I'm nothing like Sam, but I, I definitely push the envelope a little bit, and uh, and and I, I just have always enjoyed that kind of comedy, and he was absolutely, um, you know, had no equal when it came to that. Um, I did like Bill Hicks quite a bit. Bill Hicks is also a big reason I started. I knew Bill when he was 16 years old. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He, yeah, was, he was down in Houston. Yeah, he was great, too. And um, when he turned 18, he could finally drink, and I was there the first night, and he did drink. Yeah. And I guess from then on, he kept on drinking. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we knew Bill very, very, very well. He he came to uh, L.A. with Sam. Okay. There were yeah. six comedians that went to L.A. from Houston at the same time, and, and Bill was one of them. 
Tell, and, tell, uh, he should have he should have been a lot bigger in the U.S. than he ever was. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, you know, he's he when I when I was in college, I listened to a Bill Hicks CD and changed my major the next day. I, I said on my way home, I was like, you know, because I was going to be a teacher and a wrestling coach because I didn't know what else to do, but I knew I didn't want to do that. And then I listened to the Bill Hicks CD. And I was like, I said to my friend, I was like, that's one of the funniest guys I've ever heard, and I've never heard of him, which means I can do this for a living even if I never get famous. And changed my major the next day, and uh, and then to find out that him and Sam came up together and all that, it was it was pretty cool for me. When he first moved out to L.A., Sam, um, do, you, do you know what his first interactions were with Mitzi Shore, how that went? Yeah. Yeah. Was it positive? Yeah. <laughs> Every one of us thought, including me, every one of us thought that Sam will hit as soon as he gets out to L.A. Yeah. So he uh, he gets a showcase for for Mitzi. And uh, then after you showcase, I don't know if you went through all that, but... Yeah. After you showcase, you come over, and she's sitting in her booth, and she tells you what she thinks. Well, Sam got up and did his five minutes or whatever it is, you don't have much time. And, um, and I was with him. And so I remember Mitzi going, uh, you're not funny, but i tell you what I'll do. I'll make you a doorman. I'll give you a job as a doorman here. And you can see how the pros do it. And so, uh, so Sam was like, all right, well, he ended up being that doorman for five years. Wow. Five years. He's a doorman. When he was in Houston, he met uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield did a place called the Arena in Houston, big big uh, venue. Then he would go to a a little comedy club and encourage the local comics, uh, which Sam also did, by the way, when he hit. hit. And uh, he happened to come in when Sam was on stage with his entourage. Okay. And I uh, I remember. I was standing at the bar and Sam was just a got on stage and I seen Rodney and them come in and so I told him, I said, Hey, told the bartender, I said, whatever that table wants, uh, I'll take care of it. And so he said, okay. So he went over and got the order and then he pointed over at me that, you know, he's going to, uh, take care of it. Now, Rodney had no idea who I was. He had no idea I was even connected to this guy on stage but he motioned for me to come over and sit with him. Okay. And so I did, and he's watching Sam, and I don't know how we can get on the language on your show. I don't know. Say whatever you want. Well, I'll just tell you what Rodney said. Okay. I'm sitting next to Rodney, and he's looking up there, and he goes, Hey, I want to tell you something. Kid's a fucking genius. (laughs) One day, someday he's going to make it big. I don't know how long it's going to take him, because he's not too disciplined. He's gonna he's gonna end up being big. Well, still he doesn't know that he's talking to his brother. Yeah. And so uh, when Sam gets off the stage, I bring him over and introduce him, and they became friends right there on the spot. So every time that Rodney would see me, go, how many uh, how many minutes you got? And Sam would be honest about it. I got ten minutes. I got fifteen minutes. I got twenty minutes. But they end up really being close, and, and Rodney and I end up being close. Well, now Sam goes out to California. Been out there at the comedy store now for for five years. And uh, Rodney 
comes. Yeah, I think he just played Universal, and he comes over to the Comedy Store, and now him and Sam are just, you know, they hang out together and whatever, do uh, whatever illegal things they can do together. And uh, and so I'm not there. I'm, I'm actually at home. And Rodney tells Sam, said, hey, I'm doing this uh, young comedian special. I'm going to go upstairs right now. I'm going to bump somebody because I think you ought to do this this young comedian special. I think it, it would help you. Well, I owned a comedy club in Madison, Wisconsin. And I had just hosted the Showtime Funniest Man in America finals there. And be honest with you, Sam wasn't going to win a, a contest, not with his material back yeah. then. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So Sam tells Rodney, he goes, uh, uh, I, I don't do contests, man. I don't do contests. He walks off. So Rodney turns around, whoever was around, and goes, uh, where's Bill? Where's his brother at? And so I think one of them said, I think he's at home. So get, get his phone number. So they got their... Uh, my phone number, he called me about 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said, hey, I, uh, I'm doing this young comedian special on HBO. And I think it would really help Sam. Well, I give him the same answer Sam did. Sam doesn't do contests. Yeah. And I remember him going, what the fuck is it with you two guys? <laughs> Not a goddamn contest. <laughs> it's a showcase, I'm telling you. I think it could do something for him. So I said, well, I'll talk to him tomorrow and then I'll let you know. So I call Rodney, and the only reason we agreed to do it is we got a free trip to New York. Okay. <laughs> we never thought six minutes up there with, I don't know, five or six, I don't even remember how many was on there with him, uh, five or six other comics, and Sam's going to get six minutes is going to, you know, change his life. Well, we go up there, again, thinking we're just getting a free trip to New York, and uh, we'll record this, and... And uh, we'll come back to L.A., go back to our regular life. And uh, so the night before, they have all the camera crews and everything so they can set up and, and they can get the shots that they want when they're performing and they do the show okay, with a live audience. Uh, Sam's the last one who comes up. He cleans out the room. Everybody in there walked out on him. Oh, wow. Probably the crew would have walked out except they were getting paid. And so he comes out, and I'd seen Sam clean, clear rooms before, so it wasn't that unusual back in those days. Yeah. And uh, so I remember Sam come off and told Rodney, he said, I can't get going in, in six minutes, man. I can't get going. And Rodney, I'll never forget him going, tomorrow night you're going to kill, Sammy. Tomorrow night you'll kill. You listen to what I tell you. Tomorrow night you're going to kill. Next night come, I think you said you saw the show. Yeah. That six minutes changed his life. Yeah. Within a week after that six minutes when it aired, you got to remember it aired later. And so uh, it's also the first time that a comedian was ever able to say fuck on HBO. Oh, wow. People don't realize that. And they wouldn't air it before midnight. And so anyhow, they, uh, so they, within a week after it aired, I signed a, uh, a uh, four special deal with HBO, a three, a four record deal with Warner Brothers. Uh, I think it was four spots on David Letterman, uh, four spots on Saturday Night Live, all within a week wow. after he did that six minutes. Now, for five years, I've been pre bringing agents 
managers, whoever into the comedy store, and they would double over laughing. And then when it got all through, I go, well, let's do some business. And they go, we don't know what to do with you. After seeing him for six minutes on HBO, they all knew what to do with him. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that was it. Yeah. He started out, I remember we set up a 40 city tour, started in Fort Lauderdale. And the first night, now you got to remember, he was making $35 a night at the comedy store. Yeah. I was basically sub- subsidizing him all that time. And, uh, he, uh, we played this actually stand up rock and roll club with 1500 people in it. So I went in and settled up the show afterwards. The guy handed me a check for $12,000. Wow. And so I remember we came out on the tour bus and so Sam goes, how'd we do? So I handed him a check. I said, we just made 12,000 bucks. And uh, we went nuts. You would have thought we hit the lottery or, <laughs> or something. We were hugging. We were probably crying. I don't even remember now. But, yeah. You know, we felt like we had made it. By the end of that, by the end of that tour, that 40 city tour, I didn't look at an offer under 50,000. And he finally, uh, he topped out at 175000 a night. Wow. That's how much he caught fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, where did the scream... Oh, oh, by the way, okay. the comedian that Rodney had bumped, I didn't know till Rodney's funeral was uh, Tim Allen. Oh, no and kidding. he's still pissed when Rodney, <laughs> at Rodney's funeral about it. Yeah. And I told him, I said, Tim, you did all right, and Sam did all right. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, Rodney told me I wasn't ready yet. <laughs> yeah, and I think he ended up doing one of those too, so it worked out okay for him. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Where where did the scream come from? Was that something he always did? Nope. He actually started out as a prop comedian. Okay. Come out of the box of props. Okay. And uh, he's from Illinois. Now he's down there in Houston, Texas, with these Texans, and uh, he j- he was just he was just outrageous. The scream came. He had come to L.A. Uh, he married his second wife, a beautiful woman named Terry Mars. And uh, my wife and I went over to their apartment. And, man, they're having a knockdown drag out. I mean, literally. Yeah. So my wife takes Terry off somewhere. And I told Sam, I said, come on, let's get out of here. You know, we need to talk. And so uh so we went down to the comedy store, and he said, well, I'll do a set tonight. So I said, all right. So we went down to the comedy store. And uh, and by the way, I also wanted to tell you, talk about Richard Pryor. That was Sam's, like you came in and, or whatever you saw Sam on the thing. Sam walked into the comedy store, and Richard Pryor, and he was down front, was up. And he was still in the ministry at the time. This was his honeymoon on the first wife. Okay. And he called me. He told me, he said, man, I just saw Richard Pryor. And I go, and that was our, he was like our idol. Yeah. And then Sam goes, I could do that. I could do that. Well, two years later, it gets a divorce, and then Pentecostal church realms, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. You're done. Yeah. And that's when he went into comedy, but it was Richard Pryor that gave him the, uh, uh, the inspiration. Okay. Now, Sam is up at the comedy store, and it's late at night because that's what uh, Mitzi would do so she could sell drinks and everything. Right down front, there's this this couple that are all goo-goo-eyed at each other and might have been their first date. I don't know. You know, he's got his arm around her. And, yeah. 
And, you know, if you're happy, the the last thing you want to be around is people that are, are not happy. Right. I mean, if you're not happy, the last people you want to be around right. are people that's happy. Yeah. Sam's trying to do this act, and here they are. <laughs> so Sam finally just stops, because everything would basically improv. He just stops, goes to the edge of the stage, kneels down on the stage, but he's mad. He isn't being funny. He's mad. So he tells him, he says, hey, look at her, because this is the best it's ever going to look. <laughs> right here. Do you love her? And so the guy's kind of like, well, uh, uh, uh. He said, well, you know what? If you're thinking about getting married and want to marry her someday and have a nice little house and white picket fence and two and a half kids and a dog, I want you to remember this face. And he gets right down in this guy's face and just screams. Again, he's mad. Yeah. He just screams in this guy's face because it's all the frustration of arguing with Terry. And then this couple just came to came to the forefront. Yeah. And the crowd went nuts and Sam goes, that'll be your face after two years of marriage, man. It's going to be your face. <laughs> well, the way it went over, Sam just incorporated it into his act from then on. That was always his emphasis was the uh, scream. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it came from. I, I love that about comedy. I love that some that things can just happen in a night and it can change everything about the way you are and, and uh you know and, and especially at the comedy store. There's something about that room that when you get in it the right a magical place. Yeah, it, it really yeah. is. Um kind of an intimidating place. Did did yeah. uh did Sam ever struggle with nerves or any of that or was he always just never? No. He uh He'd been a preacher for seven years. Okay. I'll give you a little story down in Houston. They were, the place was called Comedy Annex, but it probably only held, Jesus, 60 people maybe. And the reason Sam went down there, if you can believe this being a comedian, they had a guy named Steve Moore that his claim to fame was is that he did the Playboy circuit. Okay. As a stand-up. Well, he'd come in there and in a week he's going to teach you how to be a stand-up comedian. Yeah. So... Carl came from California. Sam came from from uh, Oklahoma. I don't know where Yakov Smirnoff came from. Bill Hicks, I think, was local. Anyway, all these guys come there because you didn't have all these comedy clubs, and they're desperate to know how to be a stand-up. Well, so they're they're getting up, and they don't know crap. You know, they, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. The Steve boys are teaching them anything. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So they, I'm standing with Sam. We're in the green room, and these guys would come back, and they go, "Man, that's a tough crowd tonight." Man, that's a that's a tough crowd. Yeah. Next one would come in and go, "Man, that crowd that crowd is killing us. They're, they're killing us." So Sam had heard enough, and he goes, "Hey guys, let me tell you something. That's not a tough crowd. You know what a tough crowd is? A tough crowd is if you're a preacher, you have a morning service, and six people show up." And you got to make a house payment. That's a tough crowd. If yeah. all I have to do is go out and make these people laugh, that's nothing. Yeah. And he really felt that way his entire career. Yeah. He always felt like that was the easiest thing in the world, would just go out and make people laugh. So he didn't know what a what a tough crowd was. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, you come from a family of great faith, and uh, I believe you still preach, right? Yep. 
Okay. Well, I don't know if you call it preaching. I don't know if preachers would uh, call it that. We're we uh, you being Southern Baptist. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched our program, but uh, uh, I, I don't believe in in uh, hell. Okay. I don't believe in a place of torment. Okay. Uh, I went to Bible college. Actually, they the last year they asked me uh, if they pay the rest of my tuition if I wouldn't come back. <laughs> and so I said, well, that's good because I wouldn't plan on coming back anyway. Yeah. I don't believe in a physical heaven. I do not believe there's some place with mansions and streets of gold and gates of pearl. If it was, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, all those guys would have that. Yeah. Bible said that he prepared a place for us that I have not seen, ear has not heard, and it's never entered the heart of man. The good, other words, you can't even imagine how good that is. Yeah. And so, real simply, what we do on Sunday morning for 30 minutes, we had started a church in, in uh, our theater. We had a 400-seat theater in Upland, and we started a church there about four or five years ago, and, uh, and it, it grew rapidly. But after a year, you know, of having a theater where you had plays and concerts, You'd have to break down on Saturday night, early Sunday morning. You got to set up for a church. If you got to play, you got to tear down, set set back up the set for a two o'clock show. Yeah, it just got to be too much. So I went on uh, the internet, just on Facebook, and I really, and I'm being very honest with you, I really did it thinking it'll just die out. You know, these people. You know, I'm really just kind of patronizing them, doing something that they're going to get tired of, and. Uh, you know, it's going to, it'll, it'll phase out and we'll all go back to our lives. Okay. Well, we did. And instead of phasing out, it went the other direction. Now we, uh, now over 3,000 people watch us. Awesome. And our message really is very simply, God in you. This is where God is. You control your destiny. Not other people, not the president, not the economy. You control your destiny. Yeah. And you're just as much a son of God as Jesus Christ was. He was the beloved son of God, but he was not the only beloved son of God. Okay. And that is our, that is our rightful position. And just as he loved Jesus, he loves us. And it doesn't make any difference what church you go to, or what religion. We have everything from Jewish people to Taoists to Buddhists that watch our program. Probably the least amount or the least percentage that watch our program is probably Pentecostal and Southern Baptist people. Yeah. I don't think it's probably down their, their alley, and that's all right. I mean, whatever works for them. Yeah. But that's what we teach on on a Sunday morning. Uh, for and we only do it for thirty minutes. It's in the central time zone. It's twelve twelve thirty, and okay. Pacific time zone. It's ten to ten thirty. Okay, I'm gonna and, check. Uh, I'm gonna check it out. I'd love to see it. We get we get a great great response, and people love it. And it's just we call it the gospel according to Kennison. Okay. And the reason we do, I'm one of the few so called preachers that are honest about that. We all preach okay. the gospel according to us. I don't care what the preacher is. We all do. I'm just, I'm just the, I'm just one of the few that goes, hey, this is the gospel according to me. This is how I see it. 
Yeah. This is what has worked, and, and Sam and I, we have used these principles throughout our entire life. Like I said, we started in the projects. Yeah. And uh, my, myself and my three brothers, what we have done with our lives starting in the projects, it isn't just one person. We were all four extremely successful. Yeah. And it's because I think our father laid the foundation for, for the tools of what works in everyday life. You know, uh, we don't get doctrinal on our program. We don't get, well, I give them scriptures that, you know, I base the lessons on and stuff, but we don't get uh, into doctrine because I think doctrine just separates people. Yeah. And people really aren't, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Let's really want, let's just be honest. Well, I'll be honest. And I think you'll be honest. People aren't afraid of hell anymore. Yeah. I mean, really think about it. I grew up with that fear till I was in my teens. And then when I got in my teens, I thought, hey, I'm going to go to hell anyway, so I might as well enjoy while I'm here. Yeah. And do whatever I want. But we live in, we've lived in an age for a long time that you can't scare people today. Yeah. So that isn't going to work. What they want to know is how can I pay my rent? How can I feed my family? Yeah. How can I make the car payment? That's what we do on Sunday morning. Okay. Well, I love it. You know, one of the questions I had for you, um, and I didn't know how I was going to ask it, but I was going to ask if you believed in hell because, you know, I was raised that way till I was a kid. And then when my parents got divorced, we kind of, you know, we quit going to church and that kind of thing. And I've, I've, uh, kind of reintroduced myself to God for lack of a better way to say it. And, uh, I have my own theories about, God and I feel like we're all like tiny extensions of God and and when yep. we when we tap into that we can do anything and and I've always had a problem and never understood why God would you know because some people have hard lives and never get you know like my little brother I, I I I can't believe that he's in some place of torment forever because because of the way that he you know if he in fact killed himself and it does look like he probably did and it, it breaks my heart you know i don't want to start crying about it but um but i i can't think that he's there and i don't believe that god would put him there because hey you had a really hard life and you decided to end it and now i'm gonna burn you in hell for all of eternity i don't buy that and not just because of that i just have it never made sense to me and i i let just me, let me make it very simple to him okay because i like i said we fought our younger brother for six weeks had committed suicide. Let me make it really simple. And I, I, my father was a fantastic preacher. I didn't like church and I liked God less than I liked church. But I loved to listen to my dad preach. He was the national evangelist for the church of God at one time. Just a fantastic preacher. Yeah. But he could, they said that he could preach hellfire and brimstone so hot that your feet would get warm. <laughs> But sitting there, and I'll, and I'll use one of his altar calls. At the end of every, and we got saved every, every Sunday night, by the way. Everybody in the church did because we had messed up somewhere during the week. And if, if, if Jesus came while we were in that shape, we were done. Yeah. And so my dad would make his altar call, and, and it would change. But I mean, the, the basis up was always the same. God loves you. He loves you so much that if it would have just been you, 
he would have sent, he still would have sent his son to shed his blood on the cross for you. He was effective. So then he'd make the altar call. Well, if he didn't think the people that should come down or if there were some that didn't come down, then he'd go, I hate to, I hate to have to tell you this, but I got to give you the other side of the story. If you don't come down tonight and you die, you're going to go to hell throughout eternity. And then he would describe eternity. I want you to think of a sandy beach and a bird comes every 1,000 years and takes a pebble of that sand away. When he's come to take that last little speck of sand, eternity will have just begun. And man, you're about to crap your pants. (laughs) I mean... You know, you slid into that altar like sliding into a home plate. So just put it very simply. I believe God loves us with a a love that that passeth all understanding. He says he loves us more. Do you have any children? I do, yeah, he's two. How much do you love those children? I wouldn't trade them for a billion dollars. Okay. The Bible says he loves you more. And he loved your brother more than you could possibly love those children. If that's true, and I think that is true, but if that's true, why would he make a garbage can with a place of torment? My dad used to preach that hell is seven times hotter than any fire known to man. If he loves you so much, And he has the power of creation and he knows the end from the beginning, which is what we all, what we read the Bible and that's what preachers preach to us. Yeah. I have a daughter. I have two grandchildren. If I had the power of creation and I know how they're going to end up and if they're going to end up like that and I have the power of creation and I don't have near the love God does, I wouldn't let them be created. Yeah. So I'm telling you, listen to your heart. I know your brother's one of the hardest things, and you don't even have to put this on the program if you want. Probably the hardest thing you have ever went through. I had a good friend that uh, killed himself years ago in Tulsa. His dad called me and just heartbroken because he believed that if you commit suicide... You're going to hell. And I said, let me give you one scripture. And that was David said that he would not allow his Holy One to remain in hell. Hell isn't when you die. You've been in hell in this life. Yeah. Your brother's been in hell in this life. God would not allow him to remain in that hellish place. If that means taking his life, whatever that means, God will not allow him to remain in hell. I believe that with my entire 
soul, my entire heart, my entire mind. I'm just talking to you now. I'm not worried about the interview. Yeah. I believe that, man. You can have peace. That's not the God that I know. The God that I know doesn't even have anything to forgive because it said that when Jesus died on the cross, he cast all of our sins into a sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. That wasn't just the sins of those people there. That was before and later. Yeah. All he has, one characteristic, one personality, and that is love. Yeah. So I'm telling you right now, the moment your brother took his last breath, he fell into the loving arms of God. Man, I could feel it. I'm about to get emotional. Because I know, I've been where you're at. Yeah. I know it works. I know it works, man. I know it works. Well, um, I, I, I'm going to leave it in there. You know, I don't... <laughs> I've never cried during a podcast, but uh, uh, I'm going to leave it in there. And it means a lot to me. Um, well, I can feel your hurt, man. So much that I'm, I'm about ready to break down. Only because of your hurt. <clears throat> and if we could just... And I wish there was words I could say to you, but there isn't anything anybody can tell you, man. Nothing anybody can tell you is going to make you feel better. You just have to trust yeah. that God loves him and, and loves you. You just have to trust that. <clears throat> and that's easy, that's easy to do. Yeah. But it's hard to just let go and go, this is not how I would have had it work. I miss my brother. Yeah. Good news is, I remember David, uh, his son was dying. And David wouldn't bathe. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything. The moment that his son died, said he went in and took a shower, came out and they had a big feast. And they asked him, why? Why are you rejoicing? He said, I mourned while he was here and I saw what he went through. Yeah. But I rejoice that I'll see him again. And that's where the rejoicing is. And you just have to keep focused on that. Okay. Keep focused on that. I will. I definitely will. Do you, uh, do you ever talk to Sam? I don't know. I think that he, I think all of them that's over there are aware of what we're doing. I don't, I think all they do is, is they step into the next level of existence. I think they're aware of us. We're just not aware of them. And there's a good reason for that. If we were, we'd want to bring them back. Yeah. You know, and regardless of, of how it, it happens. And I don't believe that at a certain time, regardless of whatever this is going to happen. But I don't think God is ever surprised when you make that transition. Yeah. I really don't. He knew it. He knew it. He knew it before he was ever born. He knew how he was going to end up with it. Yeah. He knew it. He knows all of us that, that intimately. Man, I've never done an interview like this. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm honored that you're, that you're doing it at all. And, and a couple weeks ago, I was driving back. We have Sunday dinner with my in-laws every Sunday and, we were on the way back, and 
you know, I'm going to try to say this without crying, but uh, that song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, came on. Yeah. And uh, One of my favorites, by the way. Yeah. And I, it made me think of my brother, and, uh, you know, and I started crying. Um, but then I could see him, just like I'm looking at you, he was sitting on a dock, and he had these khaki shorts on and this white linen shirt, and and he used to have dreadlocks, and he cut them off before he died, but he had his dreadlocks again, and uh, <laughs> and he goes, it's okay, brother. He goes, I got my dreadlocks back, and... <laughs> <laughs> and I was so like, it was, you know, and then I talked to my dad and he said that he had a dream and, and Ace had the, his uh, dreadlocks and all that. And it was nice to hear that, you know, because it made me feel like he had maybe gone around to say goodbye to everybody or something. <laughs> um, so anyway, I didn't mean to start crying about it, but uh, it's... I had, I had two, two experiences uh, with Sam. And I, 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 there were more than a dream. I, I can't classify them as a dream. One was is that uh, in the year of his anniversary, uh, I had raised uh, his wife, didn't make any uh, provisions for, you know, for her because they'd only been married five days. And so I had raised over $200,000 in that year. And I had I had a dream of Sam and, and uh, we were at a graveside and he told me, he said, you've done enough for her, brother. You've done enough for her. And she called me the very next morning asking for more money. And so I told her, I said, you know, I probably did more for you than Sam would have done for my wife. But I can't do it anymore. And then I hadn't preached in seven years. And... Uh, you can put this down as a dream. You can do whatever you want. I don't. I don't care what, what anybody thinks about it. But I, uh, I had a guest actually staying in my guest room, a lifelong family friend, and I thought I, I thought I was asleep, and all of a sudden, I was with Sam, and I remember him telling me. Uh, where have you always wanted to go? I remember I said, I always want to go to Paris. He said, just, just think Paris. Next thing I knew, we were at, you know, a restaurant, a club, whatever it was in Paris. I remember I was going to sit down and said, no, you, you can't sit there. And I, and I go, why not? And he goes, because uh, there are people sitting there. So in other words, we're not like these people. <laughs> and so then this soldier came in and they were like having a having a big party and I go what's going on they said they've been waiting on him they've been waiting for him to get here so then he said I want to take you somewhere and so he took me to my, my parents church in Tulsa and I had not preached in seven years and we were in this office on the side that goes up on the platform and he said I want you to come here and preach a revival and uh, so I was like, Sam, I haven't preached in seven years. He said, I'll help you. I'll help you. So come on. So I remember we opened up that door and went out on the, uh, the platform. And uh, I used to 
call people out. I could tell you your name and what your illness was and what the doctor had said, how many children you had. So I was, I was doing this. And uh, I, when I woke up, I remember my, my friend, he's passed now, Paul Jones. He come in and goes, who were you talking to last night? And I said, uh, I don't know, man. I thought I had a dream. He said, well, you were talking. And uh, so I called, told him I wanted to come and preach a revival, and they were, they were ecstatic. Yeah. And uh, the other thing was this place was, was full. It held about 600 people. The church was full. So I put together a crew, everything else. We went in there, and uh, for the first month, we never had a crowd over 20 people. But I was so convinced of the experience that I had yeah. with Sam that I'm supposed to be here. So whatever, how long it takes, I'm going to fill this place. Yeah. Well, to make a long story short, I'll just give you one example. There was a, uh, there was a, probably two thirds of the audience was black. Over on this left side, there was this white man and, and this woman. I remembered them from in the dream. Wow. I remembered what I told them. So when I got through preaching, I went out and I had him stand, come out in the aisle. And I told him, I said, man, I ministered to you three months ago. Somehow I stepped into time. And here's what I told you. And I told him, I said, a year ago, you wouldn't be caught dead in this church. And he started crying. And I remember he kept pointing to this lady. <laughs> All just like in this dream. Wow. And uh, and I went on and told him, said, I see you uh, on television. I see you on different shows on television. Make a long story short, uh, he wanted to meet me afterwards, and they brought him back in the office. He had been the uh, head of the Ku Klux Klan, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. Wow. And he'd been converted a year before. And someone said, you need, you need to go, he came to Tulsa actually to see another preacher. said, no, you need to go over and see this guy. Now, I had a long ponytail. I didn't wear a tie. I mean, I was not the picture of a, of a preacher. Yeah. And the place was, was, was jammed from April to September. It was jammed, and then I didn't live there. I wanted to come back home to California. So when you say, has Sam spoke to me, uh, if you ask me on those two experiences, I'd say yes. Yeah. Yes, he has. Cool. Well, that's an awesome story. Um, I, I, you know, we've been on here for a while. I know you probably have to go, but uh, um, I, I did want to ask how how hard did Sam party? If you can put it into words. <laughs> oh, the the stories the stories were real. The stories are real. Yeah. I mean, he. Uh, he could party for three straight days, and uh, if I could get him on stage, he'd give him a fantastic show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his adrenaline would just pick. I'd never seen anyone with a constitution that he did. Yeah. And I also would like to put in here that regardless of his lifestyle, everything else, Sam considered himself a believer. Yeah. Through all that, he was a believer that had faults. He was a believer that had problems. But uh, he never, ever considered that he was not a believer and, and a child of God. And if you've seen him on interviews, I think even on that Larry King 
interview, they brought up, I think Larry brought up that you used to be a preacher. And Sam goes, yeah, yeah, I don't think, uh, don't think there's a lot of preachers that would, uh, would agree with that right now, but yeah. Yeah. And I think he, on Larry King said, I, I consider myself a believer. Absolutely. And, and he did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so the stories, I can't, I can't pretty, you know, pretty them up to any. I really thought, uh, that's not how Sam would, would, would go. I really thought that, uh, one day I'd walk into his hotel room and he'd be on the floor. Yeah. I really did. And then the last year and a half of his life, he cleaned up and, uh, got it all together and gave it up and it was time to go. I really feel like that. I feel like that his time out there on the highway, that was, that was his time to go. He wasn't in any pain. And, uh, yeah. it, it was actually a hard for me to, to grieve for a while. It took a while. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's how my brother was about my, my little brother, my older brother. It took him a while and, 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 uh, it's, it's come to fruition now, but it, it, it took him a minute. And, uh, so yeah. Um, I remember you saying in the book about the, the five more minutes, you know, with Sam, it was always five more minutes. He needed five more minutes of sleep, and uh, and yeah, yeah. I want to read your book again now because it's been about three years since I read it. Um, but I want to re- definitely want to read it again now. Even if I wrote it, it's a great book. <laughs> it and was it's honest. It was it was great. You know, I'm a pretty fast reader, but I I it was at the Laugh Factory in Vegas, and I didn't want to steal their book because it was in their green room, so I wanted to return it, but I had to finish it, so I read the hell out of it. I just power read it. Do you have a copy? Uh, I don't have a copy of it, no. Well, tell you what, send me a, uh, send me your address, and, uh, and I'll, I'll send you a copy. Okay. That's about the only way you're going to get it, unless you get a used copy off of Amazon, you don't know what you're going to get Okay. Yeah, but I'm glad to send you one. Okay. Well, that, you know, I, I, I know you needed to go, and I'll let you get out of here, but... Over here, Finnegan? <laughs> come around here. I'll let you see my grandson. Come here. This okay. is my granddaughter. Awesome. Oh, come here, buddy. Oh, this here. Hey, Finnegan. This here is Finnegan. And this here is my granddaughter, my life right here. That's Scarlett. Wow. You guys are beautiful. Good to see you. Well, uh, God bless you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. And speaking of God, I think God puts people in your life that uh, are supposed to be there. And uh, I, I think that. I'm talking to you today because of uh, divine intervention. So uh, it really helped me out a lot, and and I I look forward to watching this. And uh, I've, I've got your phone number. I might even get a hold of you sometime if I need to. Anytime you want, brother. All right. I feel like you're on the inner circle here. Well, God bless you and uh, your family, and uh, and I hope to meet you someday. I hope we do too. I'll get to meet personally. All right, buddy. God love you. And uh, you'll make it through this. Sometimes it don't look like it, but you'll make it through it. Yes, sir. And I really appreciate you having me on your show. I can't say I've ever done a show like this, but uh, it worked all right. Well, I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. All right. Anytime. Anytime Thanks. you want me, I'll be here. All right, brother. God bless you. I appreciate right, you. Talk to you later. Uh, I did not plan on crying during an interview, but, uh, you know, that's life. And, uh, you know... That meant the world to me to talk to him, not just because he's Sam Kennison's brother, but because uh, I know he's a man of God and I have been, uh, you know, struggling. It's been the hardest thing that's ever happened to me and and, 
other people have been through those kind of things, and so I, I, I know that I can get through it, but I'll miss my brother forever, and anyway, um, as always, go to makingithappen.com, M-A-C-A-N, ithappen.com, help out little bow making, and please subscribe to this channel if you enjoy it. I'm going to have some other great uh, podcasts coming up. I don't know that I'll ever have another one uh, like that one, but uh, I really appreciate you guys listening. I hope you uh, enjoyed that and got something out of it, and... God loves all of you, and uh, God bless all of you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Do us both a favor and click on that subscribe button.